Becky, it's yes. good for freelancers. They're value enhancers. It's good for the young and the old. Come staff and others. It makes us all brothers. It never leaves us in the cold. Where's that from? I'll tell you after the music. listeners and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast with me Simon Sapper and me Becky Wright and those lyrics before the music were in fact from uh, the NUJ song which is I don't know if it's got a proper title but it is the NUJ song by Richardson and Cesari from the 1930s and it was flagged to us by NUJ President Tim Dawson who sent us a lovely email saying how much he likes the podcast thanks very much Tim thank you Tim uh, and and throwing out a challenge through us to our listeners of are there any other union songs laments <laughs> Melodrama. <laughs> I like the fact that you went straight for lament and melodrama. Like the union movement would be full of laments and melodrama. I, you're right. We, we 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 actually are, we we assist people in aspiration. We are not there. Their, their rescue in times of trouble. <laughs> I, just, I just thought we just went for the bit real. Oh, it's all going wrong. It's all going wrong. Anyway. Always look on the bright singing. side. Always look on the bright side. <laughs> I like that though. The NUJ have got their own th- their theme tune. Well, I don't know if it's Anthem. a theme tune, but it's, but it's deeply embedded in NUJ culture. Okay. So. Uh, guys, if you don't start every uh, chapel meeting, uh, every <laughs> ADC with that song, I'll be sorely disappointed. But seriously, if there are... You, if there are songs that are part of your union's folklore, let us know. Email us at info at unions21.org.uk and we can feature them in our in our forthcoming podcasts. But um, this is the last in our second series. It is the last in our second Gosh. series. And, and uh, this episode, uh, by the way, is supported by the University of Glasgow and we'll be hearing from the redoubtable Mel Sims later on in the programme. But Hooray. before that, Becky, what's caught your eye? Well, I mean, I was in just, the news. In the news, yeah, just in general. Uh, fans, fans have caught my eye. More on that later. <laughs> oh. um, well, so I was just having a little flick through the newspapers this morning, and the first thing that came into my mind was this um, title: "A huge win. New Zealand brings in paid domestic violence leave in world first. So what it is, is that the New Zealand Parliament voted on Wednesday night, 63 votes to 57, to grant victims of domestic violence or family violence to 10 days of paid leave uh, in the event of separation with the domestic partner. Wow. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I think it's great that actually domestic violence is being recognised in, in that way, a terrible and underreported scourge that it is. Uh, it raises all sorts of questions about, about, about why at the point of separation, why not at the point of or some other point, I, I, I don't know, I suppose separation you can see what's happening. But I think absolutely right, because this is one of those things that people say, well, it's not a trade union issue. Well, of course it's a Big, oh, trade yeah. union it, issue. Of course it, it yeah. is a trade union issue on, on many different levels. The first thing I think we can kind of look to just a human dignity I mean trade unions are about human dignity and this is about dignity uh first and foremost and um and I think we therefore we should be concerned by it secondly those who are affected 
are likely to be our member or could potentially be our members as well who are going through this. Thirdly, this is going to be in workplaces and what are perpetrators like at work if they're like this at Absolutely, home as sure. well. Um, and really interesting, in the article, it talked about the economic case for it, saying that family violence costs the, uh, New Zealand between 4.1 billion and 7 billion New Zealand dollars a year. And I thought it was really interesting how he led with that first and foremost, like, oh, but this has an impact on the economy. And I'm like, okay, uh, yes, it does. But uh, it also has an impact on people and families and society in general. We should just be able to say, uh, we will support these sorts of people. Well, we, we, you know, we come at it. I think you, you know, both of us, and, and and I imagine most of the people who listen to this podcast would would would, if not all of them, if not all of you listeners, yeah, so, yeah would come to a point of view that it's just wrong, right? Yeah. So it's a, it, at, at best, it's a tragedy. At worst, it, it, it's criminal violence, and you know, so so therefore, it's the the sort of human rights kind of aspect of it. But actually, you can flip it on its head and and say, even though the business case may be low down the pecking order from a human values point of view. This is, you know, if you want businesses to say this is something we've got to do, this is something we've got to sign sign up to. That nails the that nails the argument. If you're being abused at home, how are you going to go into work and 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 be 100 percent productive? If you are an abuser at home, what's to say that you're not going to do that at work as well? And it was really interesting that the the National Party. The MPs initially supported the, the private members' bill because it was taken by uh, Jan Logie, who was a Green MP, who used to work in a um, refuge before she in a women's refuge before she became an MP. They would, they withdrew the whole party withdrew their support at the final reading of the bill, saying that the cost to small and medium sized businesses would be too great and it would dissuade employers from hiring people they suspected of being domestic violence victims. I mean. Somebody have a word with the National Party and ask them what they were thinking of about this one. Because there is also a vicious circle around poverty and the impact on for women who are having to... And also men, but mainly at the moment it's women that are affected by this. Of, you know, where do they go and how do they afford it and how do they start their lives again and how do they keep themselves safe? And then we're saying, oh, well, we think that that person might be a, a victim of domestic violence. I know, let's not give them a job. And right. then how on earth would you, in an interview, how on earth would you possibly ascertain that? You're going to ask them in a question, in a question. oh, so before we finish the interview, we'd just like to ask you a question, as well as when would you like, when could you possibly start? Are you a victim of a domestic violence at home? Because that will affect... Our decision. Well, I, I just incredulous. No, it's about incredulous look, listener. This is this is this is about creating a floor of rights of, of, of behaviours below which no worker in any workplace in any working situation falls. Whether yeah. it's pay, whether it's conditions, whether it's it's health and safety. Um, in, in the UK, I mean that's New Zealand, but in the UK, I noticed that uh, the University of Central Lanx, UCLan, does some stuff on this. So that's. That's an interesting uh, kind of. I don't, I'm not really aware of any anywhere else does. Perhaps listeners, you're, you're aware of uh, of research that's being done in other universities. Yeah, and if so, let us know. If you're an academic who's doing it, let us know. We, because this is a trade union issue. Indeed. Yeah, 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 yeah. So hot, isn't it? Heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listeners probably were like, "Ah, oh, we listened to Becky and Simon to hear none of the tales of weather that is constantly <laughs> going around at the moment." However. We've However, managed to find a way to shimmy that thing in. 
<laughs> the heat wave is a trade union issue. Heat wave is a trade union issue. <laughs> but it is. <laughs> Listeners can hear we're slightly delirious, not only from the heat, but also from it feels a bit like at end of summer. <laughs> Do you know, I was, I, I, someone, Henry, our production assistant, was was, telling, was, 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 was saying that it was 39.8 degrees on the central line, the tube central line in London yeah, this morning. Out. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's cra- I mean, you know, how can people, you know, cattle cannot be transported in those temperatures. It's illegal. Yeah. I, I, so I mean, look, we're sitting ooh, in a really nice ah. air-conditioned office right now, and so the troubles of the heat wave are far behind us. However, I remember one year when I was working in a college. Uh, this is about ooh, 12 years ago or something. I was in the only classroom that was air-conditioned, and it was that summer that went really hot again. What was it? Twenty two thousand and six or something like that. And it was. I didn't leave it. I did not leave that classroom unless under duress because there was I wasn't going to go. No other classroom had it. In fact, I went to my daughter's school the other day. The, they just had the windows and doors open and a small fan. And I actually said, this is ridiculous. Next year, we need to invest in some air conditioning. And it seems to me that every year when we're having this particular heat wave, we kind of go, oh, we shouldn't work in such heat but actually maybe it is time to put that firmly on the legislative agenda and not just ha- or campaign agenda and not just have it as a year thing where we kind of talk about it in the press well the re- i mean the reality is that summers are getting hotter more consistently i mean you know any, any climate change deniers left apart from the guy in the white house i mean it, you know <laughs> the, you know this is and the tuc are absolutely yeah, right to, absolutely. To, to, to to call for employers to to take a practical pragmatic approach which i see just out and about many people many employers are in terms of dressing in, in less restrictive clothing and and you know making sure there's lots of hydration i mean you know i'm not a big fan of of thames oh, for example fans, at all i mean thank, you know thanks for something. thanks for oh, sorry um, yeah. thanks for screwing <laughs> up my weekend thames with your useless bloody timetabling but City Thameslink station. They had boxes of water on the platform, which was just as well as I was waiting there so long. But but it was but you know that's good. That's, yeah, that's which is that's good. Right. And let us hope that staff were also able to avail themselves of said water, and it wasn't just I believe for the it, passengers. I believe they were. I believe we, they were. In fact, I'm sure the RMT would have made sure they they, and, they, and, they were. And as left and the tears and so. of course get everybody in. Yeah. I mean, I think this is. You're absolutely right. We're going through climate change and we're going to be experiencing some of these more and more. And I think the British legislation has to kind of catch up with where we're at and not just talk about minimum temperatures, but also uh, about maximum temperatures and think a bit about how we do that. And there might be some cost to it. But I think if, you know, the the result is people aren't passing out at work. It's a small price to pay. Well, I think so. I mean, Controversially, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a maximum temperature, for which, as I said, for, for cattle being transported. There's a maximum temperature that you can't exceed, otherwise your IT equipment's going to, going to, going to conk out. What about the humans? It is time. Listen, do you agree with us? It's time, it's time for a maximum temperature at work to be introduced. Is it not? It is. Let us know what you think. Info at unions21.org.uk. <laughs> We need your views. We want your views. So, whew. where do we go from there? Simon? Well, let's go We've to Mel. Things off our chest. We, we and have. We it have. very much feels like the end of school as we finish the end of our second season. Um, and onto that, it, we're back with Mel. Well, that's right. I mean, a number of the episodes in this uh, series, listeners, have been made possible thanks to the generous support of the University of Glasgow. And Mel, Mel Sims. 
uh, who is based in, in Glasgow doing some fantastic work researching industrial relations and em employer relations, joins us once again uh, to give an overview of where academic work is going next. We've heard from people like, like Jane Holgate and Andy, Andy Hodder and Mel herself about, about the work they've been involved in historically. But Mel indulges us now with a bit of blue sky thinking about, about what's important, what's coming up over the horizon. Which, of course, was absolutely fabulous and I enjoyed it 120%. <laughs> Here she is. Well, listeners, now we're delighted to welcome back to the Unis 21 podcast, Professor Mel Sims. Mel, good to see you again. Thank you. Hi, Mel. And uh, obviously, and this is the, the, the kind of the last episode of the second series. <gasps> Hasn't time gone quickly. Um, and, and, and during the course of the series, our previous discussion with you, our discussion uh, with, with other academics, lots of ideas have come up, lots of review of uh, the, the current research, young workers transition into work, how unions engage with the challenges of organising, uh, and so on. And what we'd be interested in is your view about, about where is research generally mm. g going next? What's, mm. what's, what are the hot prospects? What's most worthwhile? What's going to have, mm. the, have the biggest yield? Is it, I think, Becky, you and I were talking beforehand, is it, is it a question of, of actually investing in the trade union movement or outside the trade union movement e e even? I mean, that sort of forward view would be really, really helpful as well. Yeah, where should we go, Mel? <laughs> what a question. Yeah, yeah imagine we gave you a, uh, a sum of money. Yeah. Large sum of money. A large sum of money in a brown paper envelope. <laughs> and we said, you can spend it as you want. There is no need to think about your ref or anything to do with outcomes. What would you do? Well, I think the one of the first things, thinking about trade unions specifically... Uh, because I think there's all sorts of questions about the world of work, which are related to, not necessarily directly related to trade unions, but that will matter a lot to unions. We'll come back to those. But with regard to trade unions, I think understanding how we can strengthen that institutional context that we work in um, is, is the next really, really important step. So we understand compared to 20 years ago, a lot more about organising, what works, how we can talk to members. I think one of the main things we understand in that 20 years is that if we talk to members, we can, or workers, prospective members, we can generally talk to them about the problems that they have at work and how trade unions can help them resolve that. That may or may not translate into membership, but people sort of broadly get that. And, and I think that's important. And then we... we broadly fairly good at explaining how if we work together at workplace level we can address particular issues that are of concern I think that we've kind of we've understood which isn't to say it's easy to do yeah, <laughs> there yeah. are lots of challenges that's in, it's intensive it's risky it's resource intensive it needs money time it, skills all those kinds of things but we do broadly understand how that process works and what kinds of issues we can organise around and how we can bring people together collectively to address a particular issue. What I think we don't haven't, haven't really given enough attention to is how we can strengthen the context within which that happens. So not just laws, but also formal ways of getting collective rights. So that doesn't necessarily have to be through law. Uh, we know that the recognition procedures have always had a preference for voluntary arrangements. Mm. Um, and strengthening those 
mechanisms and changing that mood music within which that organizing takes place i think is is really important and at the moment i think there's a tendency that we kind of take that as red we we take it as a function of whichever government is in power usually mm-hmm. uh or whatever until brexit whatever european directive was coming along or whatever and we tend to kind of get quite uh, focused on that and i think what I think that doesn't give us enough agency in that process because I think there's lots of opportunity for trade unions but also other civic organisations. Living Wage is a very obvious example but there are plenty of others where we can actually say we can change the debate, we can change the context within which we are doing that organising at workplace level, at grassroots level and that I think is really essential because I think that is the major block to any real fundamental renewal of trade union power across the economy as a whole. So we can we can make our own music, is what you're saying. I think yeah. like, indeed. I think so. <laughs> or we can we at least need to Bang give it a really good shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like I've I've often thought about this, which is is that we operate on loads of different planes. We have to use David Wells' kind of strategic choice stuff, you know, mm. we've got the internal stuff that we can change, yeah. we've got the external stuff that we can change, we've got air war, ground war, what, look, whatever you want to call it. And it feels like we've kind of almost come to some kind of understanding around the, the everyday stuff almost. Um, but we're not really thinking broadly about that top yeah. that top part and also thinking strategically about all of the different institutions that get us what we would need and what small changes would need to be made yeah. in order to to have that yeah i agree and i think part of that's a political conversation um so obviously having people in parliament who can pass laws that help us helps a lot but i don't think that's be all and end all at all um, and I think we always have to accept that that is a, a sort of rough and ready route to, to, to that because any law will always be a compromise. It will go through all sorts of processes mm. of revision and it will never be, it will always have unintended consequences. But there are things that we can do um, at sectoral level, for example. I think unions have in the UK have largely moved away from thinking about sectors um, as, a, as a level at which it can be useful to organise or think about organising. There are a lot of barriers to doing that right now. One, one of which is that the employers are in a mess. Exactly. Well, I was going to yeah. say that, I mean, I've been banging on about this for ages, which is what? where are the employers? And then when the yeah. paper that came out of Cardiff a couple of weeks yeah. ago was really, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of work to, to do there around. So if I was to pick like one area of research and, and thinking, it's not just research, because some of it is, is bringing together thinking and research that's already been done and sort of thinking mm-hmm. about that next step. Uh, that would be probably the, the, the top <laughs> for me. Um, and then there's the stuff that I was talking about, sort of the world outside the immediate trade union membership and representation, which I think is is also huge. And I think we have to think about how the structures of workplaces, the structures of the labour market have changed and how that will give us enormous challenges. Mm. Um, the, the sort of the individual, like the, the, almost the denial of workers' work through things like um, the, a lot of the gig economy. Um, uh, We're we'll labelling of it as a gig. Exactly. <laughs> and and I, think, I think that brings a whole set of... of 
challenges, some of which are very exciting, some of which are just what we've done for 150 years, which is make visible the point at which your labour is sold and say there should be a decent exchange <laughs> for that. You know, in this, that sense, that's not rocket science, but that is missing, I think, from a lot mm. of that debate about the gig economy. And and to continue to kind of lead and give voice to to that. Individual unions, I think, find that quite challenging because they're much more focused on the immediate concerns of their members. Some unions have had to respond to that because it, those kinds of changes have affected their members very immediately. Mm. But, you know, there are, there are, I mean, the TUC is one organisation, Unions 21 is also sort of bringing together a group of trade unions to, to, to sort of change some of that discussion and sort of in an, in an informed way. And I think that's very, very useful. And I think we have to, when we think about what the future of trade unions, we need to think both about the future of trade unions as they exist and also then that wider intersection yeah. with the world of work and how it's changing and developing. And in terms of in terms of people to look out for, mm. the, the, you know, the rising stars, if you like, of the yeah. academic world yeah. of, of research into employment, industrial relations and so on, yeah. who would you well, who would you have high hopes for? I, well, I went to a fascinating, I was very, very privileged to be invited um, to a fascinating network called World of Work Network, and they have their own Twitter feed, and they're, they're not particularly difficult to find, and they are all PhD students and early career researchers looking at the world of work very, very generally. And they are really exciting network. They're self-organised network. I'm so delighted to be invited. <laughs> um, and they are broad. They are very, very broadly self-defined, interested in work. So there are people who would self-define as industrial relations people. Um, but there's also geographers and art, people working in art. And, you know, it's fantastic. It was one of the most exciting days that I've been to. And some of the work... Um, so there was a, there was a woman uh, whose research PhD research looks at artists who represent work, and particularly the mundane aspects of work in their art. It was fascinating. So there's some really exciting things happening there. Um, I think there's really exciting things happening around the legal uh, people questioning some of the legal uh, enforcement of workers' rights, and I think there's some really interesting stuff. So a colleague of mine. Uh, who as a, as a casual member of staff works at many institutions but I know she works at Strathclyde um, and various other institutions Eleanor Kirk and she her work is sort of united by a theme around how you uh, use the law to enforce rights but also to change uh, rights and uh, I know she was involved for example in the unpaid Britain work mm. which was very exciting looking not very exciting if you're unpaid. <laughs> but the look, report is exciting. Yes, yeah, report, but that's fine. It's very interesting and asking questions about who who struggles to get their their pay mm. um, and how uh, how that happens. So that was a project run at Middlesex, um, but then it had related um, sort of spin-off bits. And I know Eleanor was involved in one of those. And of course, legal redress is only one of many forms of redress for, mm. for, for um, underpayment of wages. So I think that's an interesting area where you're looking at really the most precarious end of, end of the labour market and where you know people are not even getting paid for what they do. And, and I think that there's some horrifying and really worrying things coming out of some of that work, uh, which show how persistent and prevalent 
underpayment of wages or non-payment mm. of wages are and how difficult it is to get redress. And I have to say, just as kind of a shout out, Equity actually have a, an organiser who is specifically dedicated to, they call it the low pay, no pay organiser. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And, and that their job yeah. is all around those sort of yeah. things because of how prevalent it is in their sector. Yeah. And there's, there's some... It's related to that, I think there's some, some interesting stuff on living wage and, and when employers engage around living wage and when they don't. Mm. So one of my colleagues um, at Leeds, who's um, doing a PhD in that area, um, uh, Callum, uh, I forget his family name. Oh, yes. I know <laughs> Callum on Twitter. Yes. Yes. He Carson. Is, Carson. That's, I was going to go Kerr. Curly yes. Kerr. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. He does do Doing things. some really interesting stuff, um, linking into debates led by people like Ed Heary at Cardiff um, around the living wage and how you can get campaigns uh, going, but also then what really swings it for employers to, to pay, engage or not engage? I think that's that's an interesting set of questions. What are some of the consequences of that for workers? Um, so there's all sorts of fascinating stuff happening. And what I'm really excited about looking across uh, the piece is, I think even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, there was a kind of worry that industrial relations as a field is kind of coming to the end of its useful life. What do we call ourselves? Do we want to be called HRM people? You know, where are we going? And I think what's, if you look around now, I think not just in business schools, but sociology departments, geography departments, all sorts of departments, um, there's interesting stuff happening about work that isn't what we would necessarily define as industrial relations as it would have been 20 years ago, but that is asking some really innovative questions and researching it in really innovative ways. And that's great. That's exciting. Well, it certainly is. I mean, your your enthusiasm for this is is infectious. I have to say, listeners, I know I can can imagine people are are listening and perhaps thinking, oh, it's academic stuff, isn't it? It's not relevant. Oh, I can't quite see how it connects. But, but, But I have to tell you, you spend... 20 minutes your company email, you, you know, it all kind of fall, fall, falls into place. But we referred earlier to, to the trade unions need to make our own music. The stuff you've described, to continue the analogy, that, that, that's like the instruments that yeah, we need yeah. to pick up and play a tune with. Do you know, I was going to say this, I think this is the hallmark for anybody, whatever role they have in a union, to be, please try to find time to be curious about what the academic community is talking about the world of work not just in terms of what it's going to look like but also where we are with it because I have always found it useful even if I haven't agreed with the principle you know and I went back to university to try and I was so enthused to do labour studies and then I remember having a lecture where one of the guys was saying to me oh the the employer will always do what's in the best interest of the employees and I was like stop being Dutch (laughs) that is not happening I'm not not I wasn't because he was being Dutch, but he had that kind of like co-determinate kind of view of it all. And I come in as this kind of English person kind of going, ah, I don't work like that. But actually, I think it's really important because you, even if you just kind of disagree with the premise, it gets you thinking about, well, why do you and how, how, how what you're doing might work or might not work. Well, I'd say, I'd, I'd say you, you just need to be curious. I mean, sometimes I think as a, as a movement, we are prone to be conservative with a small C. We're yeah. not curious enough. Sometimes we look at the safe internal issues we deal with rather than the more challenging external challenges we face. And if you are curious about the world of work, about where you are working, where your members are working, your curiosity will lead you 
to the mm. sort of stuff now that you've been describing and others are doing and and absorbing that and you know testing your ideas against those theories yeah and it's got to be an improving kind of process i have found if if my reality doesn't meet up with the thing that i'm reading then actually going to that academic and say, well, hang on a minute, this doesn't work. I mean, sometimes obviously they go, well, it should do because that's what the theory tells me. But I actually find then you get and it can easily have an interesting debate, yeah. which allows you to that process of reflection as well. And I think it also informs, it sheds light on bits of the labour market and bits of work and employment that we don't pay enough attention. We don't see. So mm. two examples that that uh, that work on unpaid Britain, which was led by a colleague at Middlesex, Nick Clark really asking questions that we didn't know the answer to who is unpaid who is struggling mm. to get paid and why and is it is it holiday pay or is it just getting a getting paid in the first place those kinds of questions and just getting some data on that i think is phenomenally useful another example from another colleague about modern slavery you know mm. going into car washes and finding out who works there the answer is not very <laughs> very good news i'm afraid and um, you know so seeing the forms of labour like uh, as potentially, you know, we just we just see our car getting cleaned. What we don't ask questions about is who is doing that and what is the terms and conditions of their mm-hmm. labour. Mm-hmm. Um, are they free freely selling their labour? I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence that they're, they're not always in, in those settings. And I think then then we see things differently. We, we, we By seeing it, we can ask different questions and understand the world in a slightly different way. And to kind of also bring us back to the paper that that you wrote for us Mel with Jane Holgate and Andy Hodder about looking just beyond our borders and not everybody can do that for lots of different reasons you know mainly language ones and time and all that kind of stuff but actually you know when we get papers like that have a look at what people are doing elsewhere because you you don't need to reinvent the wheel somebody probably is trying something out all you need to do is know what they're doing and why it works and then you can go okay well and I'm actually very, always very impressed by the English language capacities of oh, some of our yeah. trade union colleagues in many, many different countries. I've had, uh, you know, often often not so confident with their English at the beginning. But, you know, as long as you're talking about something you're equally enthusiastic about, perfectly happy to give it a go. <laughs> you know, I've had conversations with, you know, uh, colleagues from Latvia or, or, you know, Slovakia where I don't share at all the language, but they are perfectly enthusiastic to try and talk about some of the common shared uh, challenges and concerns. Well, there you have it. Listeners, ignorance is bliss, knowledge is power. Mel, thank you very, very much indeed. Well, well, uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I hope I, you enjoyed I, she's, it. She's good, isn't she? Mel is fantastic. And I have to say, I hope everybody enjoys that discussion as much as we certainly had talking about it with Mel and then back in the taxi afterwards after we had spoken to her. I think sometimes we overlook the value of those kind of conversations in helping us move forward as a movement. Well, I, in terms of expanding the envelope yeah. of, our, of, our, of our thought. Yeah. What did you think? Let us know, info at unions21.org.uk. If you are an academic and you have something to contribute to this discussion, we would love to hear from you. Email us at that address. So, it is the end of the summer. We will be back, listeners. Well, it's not. It's the beginning, but I mean, it's the end of season two. It's the end of season two. We will be back with season three, which will we'll kick off with a, a sort of TUC preview um, towards the end of the first week of September. But meanwhile, you will not be bereft over the summer. <laughs> we, could, we thought you'd probably all be crying about them missing the podcast. 
but probably but, not. But, but, you know. but not because what what we've done is we've teamed up with Open Democracy and with Sperry, the Sheffield Political Economic Research Institute, to produce. Um, Masterclasses, I suppose, is the best way of describing them, Becky. Would you agree? Yeah, ma- masterclasses, uh, thought pieces, something to kind of get your brain ticking. On that topic of um, having expansive conversations, it's about hearing some of the ideas that's out there and what they could mean to the union movement. So I, I was like, I like to think of them as like TED talks, but shorter. Yeah, and better, of course. But <laughs> but but so so the, this this is going to be a series of five kind of twenty minute uh, mini mini podcasts featuring a deeper dive from from guest speakers into issues that are of concern: union governance, a renaissance of private sector bargaining, the use of CPD in in union education, those sort of things. And you can the first of those will be out at the beginning of August, the fourth of August, I think, and then every Monday for five weeks from from then. All very exciting, and all with a little bit of an overview and breakdown from myself, Simon, and Tom Hunt, who is from Sperry. So that's for your further listening pleasure. <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> As ever, as ever, uh, we're really grateful for your company. We're also very grateful if you can rate us on the podcast platform of your choice because those ratings really are important for getting out to a wider audience. If you like what you hear, share us. Please. It's lovely to get the feedback that we do get, um, but the more we can be shared and beat those algorithms, the more we can talk about, more people can listen to good stories about unions and practical stories about unions as well. And with that, I think... We're down the ice cream parlour, aren't we? <laughs> I think now. Triple chocolate cone. Thank you very much, Simon. <laughs> so this is me, Simon Sapper, saying have a great summer. Thanks for listening. And me, Becky Wright. So until the next time, bye. podcast was supported by the University of Glasgow and presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. The production assistant was Henry Skews. It was a makes you think production.